I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 174. I'm your host, Nicola seaton Clark, and we begin this week's episode on a sombre but hopeful note – like many of you, we here at Farfetched Fables have several friends, family members and colleagues in the city of Houston, Texas, which was recently battered by one of the worst hurricanes in recent history. It will take some time for Houston to recover, so if you're interested in helping out, please click on the Charity Navigator link in the show notes. Every little bit helps. By sheer coincidence, we begin this week's episode with The Banshee Behind Beeman's Bakery, written and narrated by Khalida Muhammad Ali, who lives in Houston with her family. By day, Khalida works as a breast oncology nurse. At all other times, she juggles, none too successfully, the multiple other facets of her very busy life. Khalida has been published at, or has publications upcoming, in Strange Horizons, Fear Magazine, Diabolical Plots, and others. You can also hear her narrations at any of the four Escape Artist podcasts, Far-Fetched Fables and Strange Horizons. Khalida is also co-editor at Podcastle Audio Magazine, where she is on a mission to encourage more women and POC to submit fantasy stories. Of her alter ego, Kay from the planet Vega, it is rumoured that she owns a time machine and knows the secret to immortality. She can be found online at Kalida.com and on Twitter as at Kalida. And now, the banshee behind Beeman's Bakery. Most nights, the alley behind Beeman's Bakery is just an alley. The street lamp bleeds piss-yellow light, casting jagged shadows around its overflowing dumpster and discarded boxes. The walls are tagged with gang signs, claiming territory that was never theirs. Yardage, bodies, souls, rights. Some nights, a transient clears away the broken glass, the random detritus to squat for the night. Setting up camp here has its own rewards. The warmth that seeps through the bakery walls and through brick facing chases away the chill, but not the ghosts. This is the drawback, you see. 
the alley is never as vacant as it may seem at first never as lonely as one may wish the price of physical warmth is the chilling of your soul on the ninth night of november the banshee chases away the transients the curious the ignorant and claims the alley as her own she returns in disbelief of the injustice to recover her beloved if you pay attention you can see the faded outline of a body in front of the dumpster as the hour draws closer the details grow clearer and the body all but materializes a sharp sound cracks open the silence the butt of blood on his white apron blossoms and spreads across his chest he gasps for breath and you can even see the steam rise in a clotted cloud about his head his lips are stained red by death's kiss they say it was her son mikhail who worked at beeman's mistaken for a burglar for reasons no one can comprehend he was shot by an officer while emptying the trash she relives the day that hour when her entire world was remade when she wished to no longer be a part of that world he's just a baby she sobs into her hands as she kneels next to him my baby only seventeen he hasn't even lived yet she doesn't feel the cold hard pavement against her knees the hands on her shoulders the arms that lift and carry her away there are many stories about her some say she died from grief others believe she took her own life that she might join her son in death but the truth is something much different her fury would not allow her to die nor live it consumed her flesh but not her horror this is what you see on this night in the alley this is who you feel when you come too close the banshee kneels before her dead son her flashing energy glows blood red the air goes hotter than the ovens at beeman's then comes the palpable sound the thunderous rending of her heart it is the sound of the sky ripping and the earth crumbling away she keens like a broken dog ropey braids ripping around her head like bird's wings her grief permeates the hood all mothers within hearing distance share the same nightmare her horror her voice like daggers cleaves the night those caught within her looping nightmare claw their way back into the waking world hungry for their next breath hearts pounding they cry out the name of her son Mikhail! On this night, the alley is an archive of injustice, and the banshee is the chronicler. Kalida wrote us a note about this story, and I'd like to read it for you. She says, The unjust, violent death of Michael Brown at the hands of a police officer was the specific impetus for this story. I tried to imagine what his mother must have been feeling upon learning about her son's death. This wasn't difficult because I have a son as well. I tried to impart the feeling of rage and horror I or any mother would feel upon learning that her son was taken away in such a violent and horrific way. Thank you for that story, Kalida. It means a lot. 
So we conclude this week with "Gust of Wind Made by a Swinging Blade" by Molly N. Moss, the pen name of a tuxedo housecat named Marlene, who lives in Athens, Georgia. When Marlene got bored with being left alone all day every day, she taught herself to read fiction as a hobby, and after a while, she decided to try writing fiction of her own. Marlene's fiction has appeared in numerous publications, including Weird Tales, Bards and Sages Quarterly, and the anthology Dark Magic: Witches, Hackers, and Robots. Her story is read by Eric Luke, the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake. He has written for the comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman, and wrote and directed the Not Quite Human films for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, a meta horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills, is a bestseller on Audible.com. His website for creative projects is Quillhammer.com. And now, Gust of Wind Made by a Swinging Blade. By Molly N. Moss. Again, Kinori strained against the ropes binding him, his muscles already throbbing from exertion. Once again, the cord sliced his flesh and yielded not at all. It was dark in the hold of the guardship Murakumo, and a gathering chill numbed his fingers. Rolling waves conspired with exhaustion to make Kinori's eyelids grow heavy. He shook himself and growled, "Escape or die, Shoji Kinori." Visualizing himself forced to kneel, an assistant waiting to behead him, if he refused the Ryuzoji Daimyo's command to commit seppuku, Kinori breathed deeply and tried again. With all his might, he struggled to pull his hands free. As the cords gouged his wrists, a warm trickle of blood slid down his left hand. Kinori shut his eyes, fighting the urge to weep. Against his will, he remembered the weeping of the women, whose lives he'd failed to save that afternoon. How long ago? A few hours? A day? Rather than weep, he snarled curses. He cursed the early winter freeze the ship must be coming home to, judging by the cold. He cursed the darkness that matched the souls of the murderous samurai, who bound him and tossed him into the ship's hold. As he started to curse Narihiro and the rest of his fellow samurai, he glimpsed a light flaring up near the stairway. His words died in his throat as he watched the flame approaching. Narihiro must be coming to mock him again for throwing away his own life by trying to defend worthless women from a rival clan. Or could it be one of the sailors coming to give him food and drink? He squirmed, trying to sit up, but that only made his bladder ache with the need to pass water. Kinori moved his lips in a silent prayer to Kanan, goddess of mercy, begging that his visitor would be a compassionate sailor coming to his aid. He watched the flare settle into the steady glow of an oil lamp. Kinori knew every samurai and every sailor serving on the Murakumo. But the slim fingers holding the lamp were unfamiliar. Propping himself up on one elbow, Kinori whispered, "Who are you?" The lamp illuminated only a short radius, enough to show Kinori that the stranger wore a hooded robe. In the prevailing murk, he wasn't certain whether the garment was silver or pale gray. From fore to aft, the sekibune's hold was filled with baskets of valuables. Taken in raids of coastal Chinese villages, 
Yet the hooded person moved with swift and confident steps, picking a safe path through the loot, without either slowing pace or shining the lamp around. I am nobody, the stranger murmured, kneeling by Kinori's side. Kinori's heart stopped as the unknown person pulled a knife from inside his robe. Could the stranger be an assassin sent by Narihiro to slit Kinori's throat? When I prayed for mercy, O oh Kanan, a quick death isn't what I had in mind. The stranger placed the lamp near Kinori's bound wrists. With a single slash he cut the rope. Kinori realized he was being rescued, and his heart finally remembered to beat. He studied his liberator, who moved the lamp near Kinori's feet and cut the rope that tied his ankles together. His rescuer was short and trim, and the robe appeared to be a kind commonly worn by Buddhist monks. I suppose he's probably a young runaway from a monastery. You are saving my life. That makes you someone, at least to me, Kinori murmured. He massaged blood and warmth back into his wrists and ankles, wincing at the agony as sensation returned. Call me Tachikazi, then. Tachikazi. The name meant gust of wind made by swinging a blade. Kinori turned to study his liberator's face, but Tachikazi's features were lost in the darkness of his hooded robe. What a powerful name for a Buddhist novice. Has he studied karate with the monks? Maybe I've been set free by a gifted knife fighter. Before his rescuer put the knife away, however, Kinori observed enough to admire it. Long and supple-bladed, on its black leather handle was embroidered a white tiger stalking through a shower of cherry blossoms. Some trick of the lamp's light made the blade appear, for half a breath, to glow with a peculiar blue flame. Kinori tried to stand, but the removal of the ropes caused his hands and feet to feel as if hundreds of knife tips pricked them. Observing his distress, Tachikazi slipped an arm under Kinori's shoulders and helped him onto his feet. The boy's touch was cold as ice. How long has Tachikazi been hiding in the hold, a witness to my struggles to get free? Tachikazi returned to the stairway, weaving through the clutter with that odd grace of his. I suppose it isn't important how long the boy listened to me fighting my bonds and did nothing. I prayed for help, and he gave it to me. Thank you, gentle goddess, Kanan. Kinori leaned on the hull to brace himself against the rolling of the ship, and his bladder reminded him of its needs. As Kinori relieved himself, Tachikazi returned. The youth carried the oil lamp in one hand and a bundle in the other. I have something for you, Tachikazi whispered, and he held out the parcel to Kinori. It was a wool blanket wrapped around Kinori's own katana and wakazashi. His swords were taken from him when Narihiro declared him a ronin and took him prisoner. What stealth this boy must possess to steal my weapons from Narihiro's keeping. Kinori gazed at Tachikazi in wonder. If Tachikazi noticed Kinori's awe, however, it meant nothing to him. You must take a rowboat and escape. To linger would be your death. A draft of chill air swept around them. Kinori shivered, but Tachikazi appeared untroubled. When the icy gust passed, Kinori thrust his swords through his sash and turned to his liberator. I know that I am in danger here, but I cannot escape. 
until the Sekibune is docked. Where would I go if I flee while still at sea? Tachikazi folded his hands together at his chest. Please believe me. When the moon sets, everyone aboard the Murakumo will die. It is the will of the gods. I wish you spared, Shoji Kinori, for you are an honorable man. Frowning, Kinori asked, How can you know what fate awaits this ship? Insight was given to me, Tachikazi answered, bowing low from his waist. When this ship's crew attacked a Sekibune belonging to the daimyo of the Imagawa clan, a fleeting ache panged Kinori's heart. That terrible deed must have shocked and saddened this young Buddhist, just as powerfully as it outraged me. In late afternoon, hours or a day ago, the Murakumo's lookout spied an Imagawa guardship trespassing in the outermost waters claimed by the Ryuzoji clan. Narihiro, the samurai commanding the Murakumo, ordered his ship's crew to chase the rival clan's ship. When near enough, they'd lowered their main mast for use as a bridging plank, and Narihiro led his samurai aboard the Imagawa vessel. They discovered that the Imagawa guardship carried a bridal party. Only five samurai accompanied the bride and her maidservants. Narihiro and his Ryozoji samurai outnumbered them ten to one and made quick work of killing them. Kinori didn't protest the slaughter, for naval skirmishes between Nippon's clans were as common as raids against China. He felt sickened, as always, when next his fellow samurai killed the Imagawa ship's captain, helmsman, and sailors. They were peasants, and therefore unarmed. Although samurai had the right to slay peasants, Kinori hated seeing warriors cut down men who lacked the training to defend themselves. When Narihiro proposed to rape and murder the bride and her maidservants, Kinori could be silent no longer. He looked at the bride, but it was his twin sister's face he saw, Katsuko, pinned down on her back while brutal men took turns ravaging her. Katsuko, forced to kneel and await the fall of a katana on her delicate neck. Roaring, Kinori drew his own katana and leaped between the women and his fellow samurai. He knew he couldn't win, for he was one man against forty-nine, but he felt compelled to die fighting for what was right. This innocent young woman had no brother there to protect her. Kinori needed to be her brother and defender, just as he'd want another man to be Katsuko's guardian, if Kinori's sister were in danger and he couldn't be at her side himself. There is no honor in killing helpless women, he snarled at Narahiro, holding his katana ready for a fight to his own death. Instead of commanding the other Ryuzoji samurai to kill Kinori, however, Narahiro laughed. He ordered Kinori held still, forced to watch, as one by one the weeping girls were violated and beheaded. Murakumo's sailors, unarmed peasants, just as their counterparts aboard the Imagawa ship had been, watched the massacre also, powerless to stop it, even if they wished to do so. Kinori now looked at Tachikazi, probably as innocent as the Imagawa bride whose life he couldn't save. The boy's hood shadowed all his face, except his narrow lips 
and the smooth curve of his chin. I agree that all the samurai serving aboard this Sekibune deserve death, Kinori told the youth. But the sailors are sons of merchants, fishermen, and farmers. They did not partake in the murder of the Imagawa women. I must warn them before I flee the doom of the Murakumo. You ask to take a great risk, and you ask me to believe that you know the future, which can be true only if you communicate with gods. They faced each other in silence. At last, Tachikazi curled his thin, dark lips into a grimace. Did you not pray for aid, mere breaths before I loosed your bonds? A tingly tremor surged up Kinori's spine. Yes, he took a deep breath. So it's true, then. You talk with gods. Never before. But tonight I do. Tachikazi's slim shoulders slumped. As I said, Shijo Kinori, you are an honorable man. Therefore, you believe most other men must also be honorable. I fear you will be often disappointed. Still, warn the sailors, if your conscience demands it. But I doubt they will reward your compassion. Kinori said nothing, but only nodded. He led the way as they crept up the stairway, Tachikazi following a few paces behind him. He expected to find at least one samurai at the door to the cabin shared by off-duty sailors, as a precaution against Kinori freeing himself. None stood there. They believe I wouldn't trouble to talk to the sailors. A guard is certain to be posted at the door to the deck. His hand strayed to the hilt of his katana, but he pulled it back and instead pushed open the cabin door. One task at a time, he reminded himself. Waking and warning the sailors will do no good if I'm touching my sword as if I'm thinking of killing them. In the cabin, the air was warmer, but a frigid draft from the hold followed them. One of the sailors sleeping nearest to the door shivered as the chill reached him, pulling his blanket tighter around his shoulders. Kinori knelt by the man's side and tried waking him by pulling the blanket away, but the sailor only muttered and hauled the covering over himself again. Then Kinori shook the sleeper's arm until at last his eyes opened and swiftly laid a hand over the man's mouth to silence him. Please, do not be afraid of me, for I hope to save your life, Kinori whispered into the man's ear. A doom has been laid upon this Sekibune. Be gone before the setting of the moon if you wish to live. Warn the sailors, but not the samurai. He waited a few breaths, then lifted his hand from the man's mouth. For a few breaths more, the sailor neither moved nor spoke, but only gazed at Kinori with wide-open eyes. Suddenly the sailor sat up and backed away. Guards! he shouted. The ronin Shoji Kinori is loose! Every sailor in the cabin snapped his eyes open. Kinori pivoted, drawing his katana, and rushed up the remaining stairs to the deck, trusting Tachikazi to follow. When he dashed through the door, he whirled around, ready to fight one or more guards. But again there were none. Tachikazi sped through the door onto the deck, seized Kinori's free hand, and ran, dragging him toward the stern. From the stem came running the few samurai who were on night watch. At the stern, Tachikazi leapt over the rudder and into the port side Takasebune tethered behind the guardship. Kinori jumped after him, and with his readied katana, he slashed the rope 
tying the rowboat to the Sekabune. While momentum and the wind in its sails speeded the ship away from the rowboat, Kinori hastened to take up the oars and row in the opposite direction. At any moment he expected the samurai to drop their swords and let arrows fly from their bows, and meanwhile he heard orders shouted to the helmsman to turn the ship and pursue the fugitives. A blast of freezing wind began blowing, and it endured, thwarting the Sekabune's effort to turn and give chase. Looking back, Kinori witnessed arrows blown backward and falling into the rolling waves. When he turned back to the oars, he realized Tachikaze still stood, gaze fixed on the vanishing guardship, hooded robe billowing in the fierce squall. Neither the swells of the sea nor the blasting wind budged the youth. Kinori trembled, though not from the icy gale engulfing them. He'd heard that Buddhist monks wielded powers of a magical nature, from glimpsing the future to commanding the elements. Such tales, however, always involve men, or sometimes women, advanced in years. Even if raised by a monastery from birth, Kinori suspected this boy couldn't have mastered such arts in his few years. Who are you really, Tachikaze? As if privy to Kinori's thoughts, Tachikaze flashed a small smile and took a seat. He gestured at the moon high overhead. It will not be long until death comes to the Murakumo. Looking at the starry sky, Kinori reckoned the distance to Nippon's nearest shores, and a new dread froze the blood in his veins. Whatever fate befalls the Murakumo, we would have been wiser to stay and share it. Shadowed by his robe's hood, Tachikaze's face was impossible to read. Why do you think so? We brought no supplies with us, and I cannot row fast enough to reach the coast before we die from lack of food and water. Tachikaze laughed, though not from merriment. It was a laugh that echoed drought-stricken reeds blown by a hot, dry breeze that gives no comfort to any who feel its passage. Turn and follow the Sekibune, but do not hurry. In a few hours everyone aboard will be dead, and the ship's supplies will have no owners. Who then will stop you from boarding and taking whatever you wish? Kinneri turned the Takasebune and rode in the same direction that the Murakumo was sailing. As he did so, the wind diminished to the mildest of breezes. Yet he trembled, as if still cold. Beyond doubt, Tachikaze communicated with gods. He knew things no person could know, unless the gods revealed them. Most gods were indifferent. Some were compassionate. A few were evil. Which kind of god sent Tachikaze to me, and why? What is in this boat with me? Awake, Shoji Kinori. Seagulls cried somewhere far away. Tachikaze leaned over Kinori, his hood an impenetrable void. Dark, too, was the night sky. Neither moon nor stars were in view. Tachikaze pointed at a mote of light flickering ahead. That is the Murakumo. Closing the distance, Kinori realized the cries he heard weren't of seagulls. They were the screams of men. Silence fell when the Sekibune came into view. He dropped the oars for a few breaths, stunned to see the proud vessel adrift and its sails hanging in tatters. 
As Tachikazi tethered the Takasebune, Kinneri climbed over the railing and onto the deck. He slumped to his knees and almost retched as the molten copper stench of fresh blood overwhelmed him. By the light of the lanterns hanging from the masts, he witnessed slaughter. Murderous Narahiro still stood at the ship's helm, somehow. His hands gripped a spear. Upon its tip was impaled his severed head, teeth bared as if in a final defiant snarl, or a terrified scream. Seated around him, the rest of the samurai and all the sailors held their own severed heads in their hands. His heart thundering, Kinnery leaned against the main mast. Gods, how did this happen? They died as they chose to live. By his side, Tachikazi bowed his head and folded together his pale, slim hands. For the gods shape the world as men and women believe should be and give each of us the life and death our actions deserve. How can that be true? Rage swelled up in Kinori's gut. Still on his knees, he gripped the hilts of his swords with such force that his knuckles ached. This fate was well deserved by the men serving on the Murakumo, but the Imagawa bride and her maidservants cannot have earned decapitation. Tachikazi laughed again the sound of reeds in a hot wind. By the light of a lantern over their heads, Kinnery now realized Tachikazi's robe was not silver or pale gray. He stared at his white-clad rescuer and trembled. White, the color of death and of tragedy. You are but a man, Shoji Kinnery. Who are you to judge what those young women deserved? Did I not say the gods shape the world? as men and women believe should be? Know this. The Imagawa bride had stolen a ship and servants from her grandfather, the daimyo, to go marry her forbidden lover from an enemy clan. A solution to the riddle of the youth's powers leaped into Kinori's mind, and he gasped and bowed low, murmuring, You are one of them, one of the gods, aren't you? With a cool hand, Tachikazi raised Kinori's head so their gazes met. His other hand pushed back his hood. Kinori yearned to look away, but couldn't. No, I am not one of the gods. I am but their servant. Only for this night. Dropping the hood, Tachikazi revealed himself to be the murdered Imagawa bride. A ring of dried blood showed where Narahiro's katana cleaved her head from her neck. Her eyes were flat and clouded, her face and hands pale, her lips blue with death. From the door leading down to the cabins in the hold, the maidservants emerged carrying baskets of food and jars of water. In silence they loaded these provisions into the takasebuni Kinori used earlier to flee. When they passed him, they bowed their heads. Their necks, too, were ringed with dried blood from their earlier beheadings. You must go, Shoji Kinori, Tachikazi bowed from her waist. Go to a province where you are unknown. Marry a farmer's or craftsman's daughter, learn his business, and make it your own. 
There is honor enough for any man in the growing of wholesome food or the making of solid wares, but there is no honor in bloodshed. Also, her thin dark lips curled in a smile, you lack the temperament to be a samurai. Kinori opened his mouth to protest, but the words died on his tongue. He indeed lacked the arrogance he'd seen in Narihiro and other samurai. Yet he wondered why a young woman who condemned bloodshed even between professional warriors obeyed the commands of gods to slay murderers. But you, he started to ask, are dead, Tachikazi backed toward the rowboat, beckoning him to follow. What use can the dead have for honor? Once again, an icy gale blew. Kinori jumped down into the Takasebune and rode away from the guardship, and the bride and maidservants gathered at the stern and watched him go. A white tiger stalked to Tachikazi's side and sat at her feet, and a shower of cherry blossoms fell over all. Before he lost sight of them, the ship and the dead faded to nothing in the rosy sunrise on the horizon. Kinari opened a water jar. He washed his face and hands, exactly as the god Izanagi did, after failing to bring back his wife Izanami from the land of death. Thus purified, Kinori imagined himself cultivating a bountiful orchard. He steered the Takasebuni toward Nippon and thought, The life of a farmer must be a blessed life. Indeed. And what a way to end the show, hey? If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes, Acast and other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you can't change it and you can't sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be shoved into a time machine and sent back to central Houston about a week ago. On that slightly macabre note, I'm going to take my leave of you. I'll see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.